Well, good morning, everyone. Wow. Good morning, everyone. Okay, I was wondering if anybody was out there. Well, I've got good news for you this morning. Uh, we've been set up. I told you it was going to happen. Um, the Lord's done it again. This isn't the first time. It won't be the last time. But just as I said this morning, the Lord has prepared good works and He has set us up this morning to walk right smack dab in the middle of them. Here's why. Because apparently He knew about our family meeting before we even did. And back in January, when I was planning out the sermon schedule for the year, He knew exactly where we would be in our study of Nehemiah. Because in ways that can only be attributed to God. He has caused these two things to intersect in such a way that the application for my sermon actually took place about an hour ago in our family meeting. It's just uncanny. We've been set up. And it's a good thing. There is no question in my mind that the Lord has a message for this body of believers this morning that we need to pay attention to. So scoot to the edge of your seat, turn your ears on, and listen really closely. Let me pray for our time. Father, I'm grateful. I'm excited. I look forward to what you do through the truth of your word to change the lives of your people to carry out your mission on earth. It's what you do. And you uh, are in the business of setting people up for good things to the praise and glory of your name. And I'm convinced we have the privilege as a family this morning to experience that together. So we pray this with thankful hearts in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let me begin by summarizing just briefly where we've been so far. Nehemiah, as you recall, arrived in the city of Jerusalem to find a remnant of Jews who were struggling to survive having lived under the the oversight and oppression of their enemies, they had decided that it was better to just get along by going along. It just kind of helped keep the peace. Now, they didn't necessarily abandon all their beliefs. They just took some of the religious practices of the pagan world around them and incorporated them into their own so that they merged into one. But Nehemiah and Ezra have now stepped onto the scene and they have held out a higher standard for God's people. They've challenged their family and their friends within the Jewish community to be the people God designed them to be. Set apart for a divine purpose. They called the Jewish community away from worldly compromise in order that they might carry out the mission of God. Nehemiah was the one who led the efforts to rebuild the wall, but as we've learned, it turns out that that was the means by which God would rebuild His people. Having them come together around a common cause, the people of God began to see the hand of God at work in their lives. And despite fierce opposition, they finished building that amazing wall that went around the entire city of Jerusalem in just 52 days. In celebration of their achievement, Ezra and Nehemiah came together, called the people who now stood together in unity. And Ezra led to them 
read to them the, the law of God. For many in that audience, they, they were hearing the Word of God for the very first time because it had fallen way back into the backdrop and was not a part of their lives. And as he read, we learned that they wept. They wept because they were ashamed. They saw their lives as measured up against the, the Word of God and they recognized that inconsistency and they wept out of shame. But you'll remember what Ezra and Nehemiah did. They once again stepped forward and said, no, no, no. Do not weep. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. His point was, where sin abounds, God's grace abounds even more. God is faithful, even when we are not. And so he, they call Him, return to Him, trust in Him, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. And so that's what they did. They confessed their sin in the light of God's mercy and made a covenant commitment to live in accordance with God's Word. It was a commitment to live a life of radical obedience. Which, by the way, is the only right response to the grace of God. Because if the grace of God in any way leads you to a life of apathetic indifference, then you clearly don't understand what grace is all about. Because the grace of God leads you to a life of radical obedience. Now, look, if you will, at Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38. It says in this passage, in this verse, Now because of this, having now recalled what preceded it, is they recalled all the faithfulness of God amidst their unfaithfulness. And they say in verse 38, Now because of this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. What's being described here is a written document to reflect the, the unified profession of the people. It was a covenant commitment to put their words into writing so that everyone would be held accountable to what they said they believed to be true. And then according to what we will go on to read in, in chapter 10, that document was held on it a, a unique seal of each of the religious leaders. It was like a signature of these religious leaders, but literally what they did is they took a seal that represented their family and put that on this written document of the people. This was then followed by a ceremony where all the people of God stood together in union to make a collective oath before the Lord. And that's what we're going to look at in chapter 10, beginning in verse 28. And as we do, I want you to pay attention to the details. Because I've already mentioned to you, they line up almost exactly with what we talked about in our family meeting this morning. And I wish that I could take credit for being that smart, but I can assure you I am not. This is something that God's done ahead of time. So look at Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 28. 
Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all those who had had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God, our Lord, and His ordinances and His statutes, and that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land nor take their daughters for our sons. The first thing I want you to notice is that what was happening among the Israelites was not isolated to to its leadership. This was a movement from among the people. Nehemiah says in verse 28 that everyone who was capable of understanding the commitment made the commitment. Leaders, husbands, wives, daughters, sons, everyone who was capable of understanding the commitment made the commitment. They all joined together in this corporate promise before God. It was a covenant renewal that represented their renewed relationship to the Lord. And this was not a commitment of good intentions where they said, God, we promise to to try harder and, and do better. That's not what this was at all. See, these people recognized that God wasn't some cosmic genie. So that if you do the right thing, He gives you good things, and if you do the wrong thing, He just looks the other way. Because in our passage, we see that they took an oath for both blessing and curse. They recognized that it was important for them to submit themselves to the authority of God's Word. And in doing so, they accepted both the blessing and the curse. The blessing of God's guidance and direction and good works that He prepares beforehand when we follow Him in accordance with His Word. And then the discipline of a righteous God when we stray away. Because what loving father wouldn't see their son headed in a path of destruction and do something to redirect them to what they would want for them in goodness? And that's the love of God. And you notice they weren't picking out just bits and pieces of the law either. It says in verse 29, that they would keep and observe all of the commandments of God, all of the ordinance, all of His statutes. They were committing themselves to be set apart as a a peculiar people who live to fulfill the mission of God in their lives. I want you to hold on to that because it should sound very familiar. I want to clarify that this commitment was not a decision to live in isolation from the world, like some Amish community that was quarantined from the corruption of society. These Israelites were in the world, but they were making a promise not to be of the world. They would do business and interact with their foreign neighbors, but they would no longer accept the pagan practices of the world around them, compromising their own beliefs, in order to maximize some personal benefit or or just to fit in with the crowd. And perhaps most important in that distinction is what took place in their own 
homes. Look again at verse 30. And they would not give, that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. The point they're making here is that they were committed to raising families that were set apart from the people in the land in order that they may be devoted to the will of God. Because if it doesn't begin in the home, if learning and knowing what it looks like to to follow faithfully after God, if that doesn't begin in the home, it's not likely to happen at all. And they understood that. So that was the first part of their commitment. Now let me pause here and just remind you, that's precisely what we shared with you in our family meeting this morning. We talked about our desire as a church body to to partner with parents to, to raise up the next generation of Christian disciples. As a church, we have prayed for God's direction. We believe that God has answered that prayer. He's led us to that curriculum that we shared with you this morning that we have out in the foyer. We believe that that's a a tool that God's using to help us teach our kids the redemptive purpose of God woven throughout the testimony of God's Word. We are grateful that God has brought Jason and his family to our church body because this is a passion of his heart. But all that being said, None of this works without the collective commitment of this body of believers. This may have the seal of approval of our leaders, just like we see the seal of the leaders in this document that they created. But like we see in our passage, unless the people, all of them who have understanding of the commitment, make the commitment, it doesn't work. Because this is a unified purpose to fulfill the mission of God in the lives of His people. See, the mission of the church is dependent upon the shared devotion of the people who are compelled to carry out that divine mission to the praise and glory of His name. After all, has God not called us to be in the world but not of the world? Hasn't He set us apart as a peculiar people who live to fulfill the mission of God in our lives? Doesn't our commitment to that mission take its deepest root when we plant those seeds of faith in our homes and in our families? Do you believe that's true? Then if you do, then this oath of the people applies equally to you and I this morning. It's that relevant. It's that amazing. Look at uh, verse 31. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares of grain on the Sabbath to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. We will forgo the crops the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. We also place ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread and for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moon, 
for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people in order that they might bring it to the house of our God according to our Father's households at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of our Lord, our God, as it is written in the law. Now let me walk through this and show you how this applies. All these, the, although these people were fully committed to the full testimony of God's Word, we saw that clear, clearly in verse 29, we see here that they highlight some very specific areas, don't they? And I believe they do that because these were areas where they had historically compromised. These were places where they had failed to follow God. So instead of ignoring their mistakes, they just laid them out on the table. And they said, as a part of the commitment, let's be honest with where we have failed. And let's put those out on the table and make a commitment to live differently from this point forward. Let me give you an example of what that looks like. The first one had to do with the Sabbath. A a sacred day set aside for holy rest. But, understandably... (laughs) This commitment would have been difficult in the midst of a pagan world because merchants would roll into the city of Jerusalem on the Sabbath and it was just another day to them. And they were ready to do business. And so in order to do business, you just went along. And the next thing you know, the Sabbath was no different than any other day of the week. So notice how in verse 31 it says that they made their promise not to buy any of the items that these merchants wanted to sell. Did you see that? Promise not to buy any of the, the, the items that these merchants want to sell. Well, as I read that, I thought about, well, what about the items that you might want to sell? <laughs> Does that apply? Well, here's what, I think believe, here's what I believe happened. I think they always understood that work would be considered selling of your own items. I mean, if you have a business and you're out selling your, your items, then obviously you're doing work, right? But when somebody else comes in and wants to sell their stuff, What's the big deal if you buy that because it's not your business? You see, I think that was their area of compromise. They were okay not selling their own stuff, but it was all right. It wouldn't be considered work if you bought someone else's. That was their compromise. They found a way to work around the letter of the law by classifying work as selling goods, but not in buying them. But in doing so, they ignored the heart of the law altogether. Because the Sabbath is as much an attitude as it is a day. It's orienting our heart to the things of God. Being mindful and attentive to God's presence. And they knew they had lost that perspective. And so they put it on the table. And they said, this will look different from this point on. And let's be honest. It's just as easy for us to lose that perspective in our world today, isn't it? We've probably made similar compromises. Just like we see in our passage this morning. In fact, most of you are old enough to remember a time where there were no businesses that were allowed to conduct business on Sunday. You remember that? It's the blue law. It happened in most of our lifetime. So even if you wanted to go out shopping and 
do things like that. You couldn't. You had to find other things to do with your time, like be with your family. It's a novel idea. But if you think about it, there were no baseball tournaments. There were no volleyball tournaments. Sunday was something that was held sacred. But now, it's just another day of the week. You see, I think we are equally as skilled as the Israelites at justifying our actions. But the truth be known, we've let the busyness and misplaced priorities of our culture invade our lives just as much as they have. We are no different. We have let the secular crowd out the spiritual. And our heart is not easily oriented to the things of God. Now, there's a natural evolution to this compromise because it doesn't end there. And you'll see this progress in our passage. Once the Sabbath was no longer sacred in this community, once they lost that perspective of orienting their lives toward God, then what naturally followed was that worship was no longer central. Worship is the heart of the Sabbath. And so if the Sabbath is no longer sacred, then worship would no longer be central. And if worship is no longer central, then ministry no longer becomes vital. It is a very natural progression. In fact, turn over to Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 10. This is the natural evolution when this compromise begins to happen. Look at verse 10. Nehemiah speaking says, I have discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. So the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away from the temple, from the house of God, each to his own field. You see, here's what's happening. Many of the Levites had to go back to work in their own fields instead of ministering in the temple because contributions to their ministry had become so insignificant that they were no longer sufficient to meet their daily needs. So they had to go out to make a living somehow and work in their own fields. That's the evolution. When the Sabbath is not sacred, worship is not central, and ministry no longer becomes vital. Everyone is so busy with so many other things that the worship of God is no longer central to their lives. So if you look back at the commitments that they make in verse 32, you're going to see how they all relate back to restoring the heart of worship among the people of God. They establish an annual contribution to be made for the service of the house of God, is what it says. And then in verse 33, it kind of outlines some specific uses of how that money will be used. I want you to notice that this annual contribution that's being prescribed in this passage, here's something that's interesting. If you look at that amount and you go back to the original law of Moses and what he prescribed, this amount's actually less. It's a reduction in the tithe. So what that ought to tell us is it wasn't an issue of the amount they were giving. It was the consistency. They just weren't very faithful to giving because they weren't devoted to the work of ministry. It wasn't important. 
in their lives. When worship is no longer central, then ministry is no longer vital. And so giving simply becomes a reflection of a half-hearted devotion. That was what was true in the lives of these people. But now God has captured their hearts. And they are making an oath to restore their faithfulness to the work of ministry, both in their finances, but as well as in their service, in their time. Look again at verse 34 of our passage, chapter 10, verse 34. It says, Likewise we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people, in order that they might bring it to the house of our God, according to our Father's households, and at fixed times annually, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as is written in the law. So in order for that work of ministry in the temple to be restored, the people had to get personally involved. And the reason is, is because that altar of sacrifice would need to, be, would need to burn continually. That's what it says. During those times of sacrifice, those holy feasts that they've named, all day long, all night long, that's a lot of wood, right? And so they said, all right, we can't depend on any one person to do this. Here's how we're going to solve that. We're going to draw lots. And whoever's name is drawn, your family is responsible for carrying out that task for that given amount of time. They knew that for the work of ministry to continue, they were going to have to get personally involved in some way. Again, this morning, in our church family meeting, we shared about some of the exciting things that are happening in the life of ministry here in our church. They involve things happening in our missions program. Things happening in our children's and student ministry. We didn't mention it, but right around the corner, some things happening with our small group ministry. These are things that we believe God has used in our church body to help us fulfill the mission He's called us to, to go and make disciples and to send those disciples out to the uttermost parts of the world. But unless people in this church get personally involved the ministry of the church will lose its life just like it did in this Jewish community. Because when consumers outnumber contributors, when we have more people here because of what they get instead of what they give, then the work of ministry simply cannot survive. If it was true for the Jews, then why wouldn't it be true for us as well? Now, traditionally, we ask for volunteers, but I don't know, maybe according to this passion, we ought to just draw lots. (laughs) Pick names, right? Well, we're not going to do that, but let me tell you what I do think we ought to do. I think we should follow the example of the passage and make a collective commitment as a church body to get personally involved in the work of ministry. And here's why. The Scripture has called us to be a part of the church because we exist for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure and stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, all Christians have been called by God to be equipped through the church 
so that we might carry out the work of ministry as ambassadors for Christ in the world. We have been redeemed with a purpose. And that purpose should be central to our lives. Nehemiah goes on to explain what that looks like for these people. And once again, I think it applies to us. Look at verse 35. It says, now in order that they might bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree, the house of the Lord, annually, and to bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, the firstborn of our herds, our flocks, as it is written in the law, for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine, the oil, and the priests at the, t- at the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites, for the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all their rural towns. And the priest and the son of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up to the tent of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain to the new wine, the oil, to the chambers, There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers and the singers. Notice those all that had left have now returned. Thus, we will not neglect the house of God. You see, when the Sabbath becomes sacred, then worship becomes central and ministry becomes vital. And this is not just what's left when everything else is done. This section describes the commitment of the people. You notice that it talks about first fruits. That's the, the term that is applied here. And as you can see, it applies to the first fruits of the field, the first fruits of the flocks, of the herds, their family, their finances. Basically, if it was important to life, they were committing to use it in a way that honors God most. And giving to God first was the, the best way to be certain that you were giving the best to him. Remember, the reason this commitment is here to begin with is because this is an area where they had historically compromised. The sacred had been swallowed up by the secular. And in this oath, they recognized that this is an area where they had compromised, but from that day forward, they promised that it would be different. They renewed their commitment to give God the best out of what they had to offer and not what's left when everything else gets done. Because when the Sabbath is held sacred, worship becomes central, ministry becomes vital, and pursuing God becomes life's ultimate priority. You see, you and I ought to have that same conviction in our life. Because our life in Christ is the only life worth living. Do you believe that? Is that the center of your heart? Is that what navigates your family? Your day? Is that your hope? I think it's the heart behind that famous quote that you've heard from Jim Elliott who said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Or as Jesus himself said, 
For whoever saves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he'll find it. Because let's just be honest here. We've all experienced the disappointment of chasing the world's empty promises. We've all been there. And, and probably some of us are still in that pursuit. But like the Jews, we need to come to the conviction that the only hope we have is in God alone. That Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And that there is no way to the Father except through Him. And that He has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. And yet even as I say that, I know people are thinking, yeah, but what about that abundant life? Because life is really hard. And there's some difficult things that people are in the midst of. And I get it. And I think that's the very reason Paul told the Corinthians these words. Listen to what he says. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. In other words, the heart of our hope is not found right here. It is not in this world. It is things yet to come. Listen to what Paul tells Titus, because this is what our hope is, okay? Listen closely to this. He says, we are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself in order that he might redeem us and set us apart as a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. That's our hope and our mission for life until it happens. That's the center of who He's called us to be. I believe this passage has perfect timing in the life of where we are as a church family right here today. I didn't plan it out, but God did. And I believe the message from this word is intended to be a message for this church. And so let's do our part, just like these people did. In unity, believe together so that everyone who understands the commitment makes the commitment that says, that's the people we want to be. Where the Sabbath is sacred. Where worship is central to our lives. So that ministry becomes vital because the most important pursuit in our life is aligning our hearts to the will of God, to the praise and glory of His name. That's what we want to be. That's the commitment we're making. Now, I didn't plan this part either, but we happen to do baby dedications this morning. Okay, so parents, if you have kids, go get them and come back up and meet me up here. As they're doing that, I want you to think about this. (laughs) Okay, I didn't plan this. You get that? I've said it a few times, right? I didn't plan this either baby vacations on this specific day. In fact, I looked at our calendar of all the things we had going today, and I thought, well, this was crazy. I had a lapse of judgment on my part for planning all this. But clearly, the Lord wanted this to happen. Because here's what baby dedications mean at Melanie Park Church. It's really an oxymoron. Because it's not a dedication of a baby. It's a dedication of a family. It's a dedication of parents to raise that child in a way that they know and follow Christ. So when they stand up before you, basically they're doing what this passage called these people to. 
to begin the process within their own homes of pointing people to hope in Christ, to faith in God alone. We're doing what this passage calls us to do. Now, the other part of what we've talked about as a church family when it comes to, we'll call them family dedications, because it involves the church family too. So you're not going to sit out there and say, oh, isn't that sweet, and I'm glad they're doing that, because this commitment involves you. Because when they stand up here and say, we are committing ourselves to raise our children in a way that they might know and follow Christ, then what you are saying back is, we affirm that commitment and we pledge to join you so that that child becomes like a child of my own. That commitment is my commitment. And I stand with you to raise that child in a way that they might know and follow Christ. That's what this is all about. That's why we do this. So let me remind you that this is a family dedication. These families are dedicating themselves to raise those kids to know and follow Christ. You are making a commitment to join with them. So would you stand and let's pray together. Father, we pray for each and every one of the families represented here. We pray that they may be faithful to raise their children up in a way that they may know and follow Christ, that they see that their hope is found in His death, burial, and resurrection on their behalf, and that they might have life and have it abundantly. I pray that they fulfill this calling by not only what they say, but perhaps even more importantly, and how they live so that it is portrayed for them in a most visible fashion each and every day. And I pray that those who stand this morning as a part of our church family join with these parents to encourage them, to pray for them, to walk alongside them in a way that they partner together to fulfill that promise, that pledge that they are making this morning. I pray that in doing so, we as a church body fulfill the great commission that you've called us all to, to go and make disciples beginning in our own homes and then to the uttermost parts of the world. Father, I pray with all sincerity that the pledge of the people of God in our passage this morning becomes the pledge of the people at Melanie Park Church, that we believe with our whole heart that it's important to center our lives around knowing You, pursuing faithfully a relationship and walk with You in our homes, in our jobs, and anywhere we go. May the Sabbath become sacred. May worship be central. May ministry be vital. And may we have the pursuit of knowing You as the ultimate priority in our life. We pledge to you this morning as a body of Christ to be faithful to encourage each other to this end. And it's the name of our Savior Jesus Christ who makes all this possible for His praise and glory. In His name we pray. Amen. Have a great day. Good job.